Romans chapter 13 for the final time. This is a part of an exercise that we've been doing as we've studied the book of Romans. We're going through this book verse by verse, and after every chapter, we've, we've paused to look back at the whole chapter and get kind of a bird's eye view. I think it's important to do that because if, if you're not careful in studying a big, dense, rich book like the book of Romans, you can kind of lose the forest for the trees and realize, or think rather, of, of it as an encyclopedia of verses rather than a consistent argument that's moving from chapter one all the way through the end. What I want to do is read the text for us so you can hear the whole thing, and then we'll talk through this chapter very, very quickly. By the way, you should have an outline. We're not going to use a PowerPoint today. You should have an outline that was handed out to you. Uh, that will just uh, help us make our way fast and quickly through this text. In order to read chapter 13, though, turn back over to chapter 12 for a moment. Paul begins this practical section of the book of Romans, this applicational section, after 11 chapters of explaining the mercies of God and the gospel and its theological tributaries, He says, therefore, verse one, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's what Paul has said. For 11 chapters, he's explained that Jesus is God's son sent from the Father in heaven. God, very God, who became a man. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Lived a perfect life. Died a death in our place as a substitute to receive the full furious wrath and anger of God because of sin and took it on so that those who believe in him would not have to receive it on themselves. And he rose from the grave, resurrected on the third day to show that he had power over sin and death and offers that same hope to you and me. Therefore, we are to not be conformed to the world from which we're saved, to be transformed by thinking differently. Right after that, in chapter 12, he goes into application of spiritual gifts that should be applied first and foremost in how the body of Christ deals with one another, how we love one another, care for one another, minister to one another. Then he goes into a section about love, how how uh, loving the brethren is, is to be uh, a priority among all relationships. That we would have brotherly love for one another and exercise the, um, uh, the utmost care in maintaining fellowship and peace with those who love Christ. Then he comes, he goes from the church and expands outward. And he goes to society and the government to anyone and then actually to our own flesh in the middle of that. Just listen to this, follow along as I read. Romans chapter 13. Remember, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has Fulfill the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Mark Twain famously quipped, quote, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me, end quote. I think here in Romans 13, we find a section of scripture that is not difficult to understand. It's pretty straightforward. But it's a section that can bother you as some of those passages did Mark Twain. And it bothers us if we don't have the heart and desire to honor and obey the one who bought us with the, the price of his own blood, his death. Romans 13, as we just alluded to, continues the application of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. To be transformed away from being a worldling and become more like Jesus, the perfect man, God in flesh, our Savior, our Lord, and our example. Now, Romans 13 is penetrating. It's pointed, it's brief, and in some senses, it's shocking, especially for those of us who live in a, a democratic society, a representative republic, who feel like we have a say in our government, and we do. 
I'm able to travel around the world a few times a year, and I'm always thankful when I come home and thank the Lord that he gave me this country in which I could live, for which I could be thankful, in which I could be raised. But remember for a minute the context of Rome. Remember the context and the societal dimensions of these people to whom Paul was writing. There was very little justice for the average citizen. No lawyers, no personal attorneys. And if you were a non-citizen, you had no hope for any justice. That's why I remember in the book of Acts, they thought they could deal with Paul any way they wanted. Once they found out he was a Roman citizen, everything changed. There were no hospitals, no antibiotics, no dentists, no department stores, no water purifiers, no cars, no running water, no phones, no security systems. Homosexuality was rampant, even encouraged among the army. Prostitution was not only legal, prostitution was a legalized and societally condoned way for men to get closer to their idolic gods, the the idolatry of their gods in the temples by having sex with the temple prostitutes. There were a multitude of gods, but all of those were subservient to the one true and living God in the Roman culture who was Caesar. In this culture, Christianity was birthed. Paul understood very well that a person who committed their life to the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be a moral and a societal anomaly. We said this back at the very uh, beginning of our study of chapter 12. True Christianity stands out. True Christianity is noticed. Biblical Christianity doesn't look and act like other worldlings. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 15 of that letter, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the middle, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And then he says this, among whom you appear as lights in a dark world. You may have heard someone say and try to be clever that Religion is personal, religion is private. Everyone's religion should be their own deal with their own idea of their own God. Paul would have completely flipped over such a notion if a Christian were to say that. If you are obedient to Jesus Christ, if you apply his word, you will stand out, according to Paul, as lights in the dark sky. Now, most of you know, and if you don't, I would just encourage you, take some night with, with, without any clouds, maybe drive out uh, west toward uh, 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 KU or maybe up north toward Leavenworth and go to where there's not a lights around, pull the car over and just get out and look up. And what do you see? Incredible amount of stars. 
Have you ever looked up in a sky like that, into a sky like that, and said, look how much darkness. I mean, it's all black except these little spots. Look at the black, look at the darkness. No one notices the darkness. Paul understood that and said, if you and I live biblically, we will stand out not just as lights, but as lights in the middle of a dark background. In other words, we will be noticed, isolated. As we read earlier in Luke's gospel, persecuted and unappreciated. Christians should stand out according to Philippians, in a crooked and perverse generation as lights in darkness. Now, as we come to Romans 13, I'm gonna, we're just gonna kind of drill down and you can look at your, your uh, sheets there. There are really three reasons that Christians stand out in the darkness of our culture. Uh, they do so with governing authorities, they do so with others, and they do so in the light of the coming of the Lord. Those are our three big points. And we're just gonna break this down and run and rush through this chapter so that you can see how it stitches together. He discusses the believer's responsibility toward others and the Lord because of the spiritual transformation that's happened in Christ. So let's look, number one, at the Christian and governing authorities. The Christian and governing authorities. Specifically, ruling authorities are to be obeyed by believers, by Christians. Verse one, every person, comprehensive. It doesn't say if you like the government, if you voted for the government. It doesn't say every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, before we drill down into this any farther, let, let, let me just encourage you. There is a place for political activism. It's within our law. There's a place for political involvement. There are wisdom passages that will tell us how to do that, but those are other passages. This is not that passage. This is not in creating a government. This is in responding to the government God has put over us. This passage applies to every man and every woman in every age and in every culture regardless of government. He says, be in subjection to the governing Authorities. Why? Why should we do that, Paul? He gives us three reasons. First, they are established by God. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This is hard for Americans who live in a voting society to, to all often swallow, but you understand that the one who sits in the White House and every other office of public governing administration has been ordained by God. Not always because they would give great leadership. Just read the Old Testament in the kings of Israel. Sometimes wicked rulers were given as, given as a judgment to the people. But that doesn't change the fact that God is still in charge of who's in charge. Secondly, look, they, they carry the authority of God. Verse two, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance, that which is ordained, been set forth by God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. He's basically saying that there ought not be the rebel Christians who are out resisting the government. He no doubt had in mind here the movement of the Jewish zealots. Remember them? 
Simon the Zealot. These were a group of people who believed they were on God's side by defeating Romans, even in small pockets, and that God would honor them sometimes by ambush and even murder, and that God was in their resistance. Paul says there are no Christian governmental zealots. We don't resist authority. Why? Now, if you, if you go a step farther, you, you understand that it's spiritual. Thirdly, because they're ministers of God. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. He talks about the, the law of cause and effect, crime and punishment, for evil. <laughs> if you're doing what's right, you're not gonna be in trouble with the government. Pretty straightforward. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Do you want to not be pulled over for speeding? Don't speed. Pretty simple, right? For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. That's an incredible statement. Now, before you say, Paul didn't understand the government in the United States, remember the government Paul was talking about. Caesar and Rome. It was about to be outlawed in just a few years from the writing of Romans to even be a Christian. If you were a Christian, it was punishable by death. In what sense is the government a minister of good then? Well, Paul understood the worst thing that could happen to a person. This world is death. What's the best thing that happens to a Christian? Faith becomes sight. But if you do what is evil, if you break the law, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The sword has to do actually with capital punishment. There is no um, uh, evidence that a a Roman court or a, a Roman soldier would use the sword to cause stitches to be needed. The sword, when they used the word sword, it was for death. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. He says, God has established laws and government to keep order. Not perfectly, this is not the kingdom of God yet. But we are to submit to and honor and obey the governing authorities. Pretty clear. Next, he says, ruling authorities are to be honored by Christian. Why? Because of the consequences. Verse 5. It is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath. In other words, there are punishments for breaking the government's law. Breaking the law ought not be the reputation of a Christian. That's the wrath of the government. I don't think it's the wrath of God in Romans 1 because of the context. He says, secondly, we do so because of conscience, but also for conscience sake. A believer, Paul says, ought not be the person leading the way in as much as they can get away with regarding the law, but as close as they can come to obeying the government and the laws. And then he says in verses six and seven, ruling authorities are to be rendered taxes by Christians. Why? Well, verse six says, because authorities are servants of God because of this you also pay taxes remember because of what because they are the representation of God his ordained authorities on the earth rulers are servants of God 
devoting themselves to this very thing. That is the rule of people in his stead. It brings up taxes. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who just woke up in the morning excited about taxes. I remember very clearly one of our sons had saved up some money for a certain thing, went to the store to buy it, realizing he had saved up for the price. And when it was rung up, guess what? He didn't have enough. Why? Because he didn't include taxes. If you've ever bought a house, and if you don't, if you haven't bought a house yet, just when you, that stack of papers comes, just don't read. Just sign and keep going. Sign and flip, sign and flip. And you see the taxes you pay up front. And then there's an annual reminder of the taxes you owe because of your property. And then there's taxes at the grocery store. And if you live on the Kansas side of Kansas City, there's different taxes in every municipality. We don't like paying taxes. What does taxes do? Well, it does allow for the existence of government. I'm not condoning all that the government does or the way they spend taxes. But you know what taxes do in one, in one sense? They don't give us all of our money, which reminds us it's not ours anyway. It takes our talons off of the grip of this world. Now, we won't go to the passage. Remember we studied earlier where... Uh, they had to pay taxes, Jesus and Peter, and he sends, sends them down to get taxes out of a fish's mouth. I've been fishing a lot, and I have yet to find my taxes that way. But Jesus did honor by saying, give Caesar what is due him, and give God what is due him. They're servants of God. Also, the authorities are due these taxes, in verse 7, Render to all what is uh, due them, taxes to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In other words, a Christian in word and in deed ought not be the complaining contrarian about the governments under which we live. That is so hard. I was talking to some friends this week. I grew up in a, in a house where the dinner table was live with, uh, with uh, debate and discussion about government. My father was a detective, and he had very strong opinions about these things, and I adopted them full on. You know, looking back on that, it, I'm not blaming my dad, I'm blaming my own flesh. That fed something in me where I love to point out everything that's wrong with everything in the government. It's not hard to do, is it? I think what Paul is saying is you give them honor. What an evangelistic point that could be if someone at the water cooler is talking about this or that and the other with the government and they say, what do you think? So I, you know what, it's temporary. I'm, I have a king Who's your king? I'm glad you asked. And then you're into gospel conversations. Complain all you want, but we have two, four, six, and eight-year terms in our government. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world are living under dynasties that are wicked. I was talking to someone the other day about a, a movement that's going on in North Korea right now with evangelistic outreach, people risking their lives to go in and tell people about Christ. We really ought to watch 
what we complain about. So he says, a Christian should stand out in the world because we think about government differently than other people. We want to engage and we want to care, but ultimately we don't care as much as our king and his kingdom. And when we do this, we'll stand out. You want to debate about presidents and senators and house of representatives? You want to debate? Hey, that's great. But can I tell you about something that's more important than a king who will rule forever and ever? I think that's what Paul is hinting at. The Christian stands out because he, he has a different, she has a different response and perspective about the government. God put the rulers there. Not always messianic figures either, right? Then he changes, he broadens out. And in verses eight to 10, he talks about the Christian and others. He talks about loving others. I don't think he's just talking about Christians here because that was the subject of chapter 12. He's broadening it out. The Christian and others. Verse eight, he says, Christians owe love to everyone. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He's building off taxes. Don't owe anyone taxes, but do be, there's a good kind of spiritual debt. Be in debt to others that you owe them love. Jesus said, love your enemies. We just read that in Luke 6 this morning, how providential that was. We love others. Why is that important? Now, if you're a biblical student, if you love Bible study, if you love connecting Old Testament and New Testament dots, the middle of verse 8 through verse 10 ought to be a flashing red light on your dashboard. Christians obey God by loving others. He says in the middle of verse eight, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now stop the presses. You and I read over that and we just kind of keep going to verse nine. Understand how a Jew would have heard this. A first century Jew who spent his whole life trying to obey the law. And Paul says, if you love your neighbor, you have, drum roll, fulfilled the whole law. You've done it all. If that's not clear enough, now he gives some examples. He says, let me give you, he picks uh, uh, some out from the Ten Commandments, four of them, for you, for this. You, you shall not commit adultery. We all know that passage from Exodus 20. You shall not steal and you shall not desire others' things, covet. If there's any other commandment, it's all summed up in this. Reaching back to Leviticus, he says, you shall love your neighbor. And then he goes one step farther. As you love yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He says it again. See the bookends between the middle of verse 8 and uh, the end of verse 9. It fulfills the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we went through all the Ten Commandments and we showed each one of the Ten Commandments is a way that you love God or you love others. It's a demonstration of protecting their rights and their honor and their privilege and their joy, not our own. A little phrase in there, though, is pretty instructive. Love others, love your neighbor 
As you love yourself, Paul told the Ephesians, no one ever hated himself, but nourishes and cares for himself. In Ephesians 5, we all love ourselves. We do. We protect ourselves. We promote ourselves. We want to please ourselves. I think that's a God-given Desire because he uses it not negatively but positively. The way you care for yourself, that's the standard by which we love and care for others. And right here, I don't think it's talking about just believers. It's unbelievers as well. Anyone who comes in contact with us ought to see someone who sounds like, acts like, loves like God. Remember Romans 5? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What's our relationship with others? We're not the curmudgeon. We're not the mean guy, the mean gal. We're, we're gracious. We, we have love for those, especially Luke 6, especially those who mistreat us. When you respond in love when I respond in love to people who mistreat us, who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. He doesn't keep it on the horizontal in our response to the world in which we live. At the end of this chapter, he goes vertical. This is the third category, the Christian and the coming of the Lord. He comes back to God. This is such a great reminder. When, when you see how this, this chapter progresses, it's such a great reminder that Christianity is not behavior modification. Trying harder, being good, being better. It's not just changing our behavior. It's responding to the true and living Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with him. It transcends behavior and it motivates behavior. We don't act a certain way so that God will accept us. He receives us in believing his son and then we respond in obedient behavior. What's the ultimate motivation for responding well to government, responding well to others? What's the ultimate motivation for responding well to the body of Christ, for being transformed by not being conformed in this world? What's the ultimate motivation? He says so. In verses 11 to 14, Jesus is coming back. The end is near. The Christian and the coming of the Lord. In verses 11 and 12a, he talks about awareness of the imminency. Do you know that word? The immediacy, the, the, the quick coming, the imminency of his return. Do this, this, literally in, in, in the Greek. This you do, and the this, I think, extends back two chapters Be transformed, love the body, honor the government, love everyone. Do this Why you know the time. Now, if you're like me, you say, maybe, maybe I don't. What, what time is it? He explains that it is already the hour. He goes from general time to specific hour. It is already the hour for you to wake up, awaken from sleep. 
What are we talking about? For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. This is an important verse. He says, salvation is coming to a group of people who are already saved. Well, how, how can he say that? When we believe that was justification being made right before God because of his son, salvation in, in belief, responding to the gospel, that's what happened when we believe. But then he says, a salvation is coming. Remember, salvation is made up of three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? That, that final consummation when we come to know the Lord face to face. That's the salvation. That salvation, the final salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And we said last week, and we can say it even more accurately this week, you and I are closer to the Lord's return than anyone who's ever lived. Jesus left this earth in Acts chapter one. He ascended to the clouds and the angel showed up with his disciples and said, he's going to return in the same way, physically, bodily, every eye will see him. Everyone will hear the shout of a trumpet, the blast of his coming. I was thinking about that a little bit this week and thought, why would, why would anyone believe that Jesus is going to come back? And you will only believe that if the credibility of that promise is anchored to what you know of who Jesus is what he did and what he said when he was alive the first time he was here. Paul says, you need to know what time it is and wake up. He uses this metaphor of darkness and day, night and day, waking up throughout this passage. He says in verse 12, the night, it's almost gone. The day is near. The alarm clock is about to go off. You ever wake up just a few minutes before your alarm is supposed to go off and you look at the time? I don't know what that dynamic is. It seems like I always wake up five or 10 minutes before the alarm clock. I look over and I see that, it, you know, this morning it was, it was five. And at 10 to five, I looked over and it was saying 4.50. That's what's going on here. Do you know? The alarm is about to go off. But the alarm here is not just a, a wake up, it's the return of Christ. Which means we need to be ready, secondly, for his immediate return, the imminency of his return. This is in 12b through 14. And there's three ways we do that. We broke this down last week. Readiness, first of all, in character. Verse 11, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, the, the, the things you do in the night without the, the reality of the light of Christ's knowledge and presence, and put on the armor of light. Remember we said that word armor is probably better translated weapons. We take up the weapons. We know how to fight against the deeds of the darkness in our own heart, we're not, listen, we're never going to win the battle against the deeds of the darkness in this world, are we? Are we gonna stop all evil in this world? No, no, no. And we can do what we, we can to try to uh, stop the momentum and the force of any kind of wickedness or any kind of evil, but ultimately, he's talking about our own character here. Let us lay aside 
the deeds of darkness, which assumes that we all have deeds of darkness to be laid aside, right? It doesn't say if maybe you have some issues in your life. No, lay aside the deeds of darkness. All of us have issues in our life, back to Romans 12 too, that we're being conformed to this world and not transformed into the image of Christ. Recognizing that. Then he gives three categories with three couplets under this. Let us behave properly as in the day. It means act like Jesus is looking at you and all, are, all things are exposed. You're in his presence. First of all, he talks about uh, with drinking. He says not in carousing or drunkenness. This is l- giving your mind over to something that would influence it in any way. And the parallel in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled or controlled moved along by the Spirit. He says, don't be caught when the Lord's return, Lord returns, giving your mind over to something that will alter it. Then he says, second couplet, in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That's sexual deviance, sexual sin in thought and in deed. That's what those two expressions mean. And wow, do we live in a sexually pervasive culture and society. I was wondering about this this last week. Um, We've talked about entertainment, and this is not the beat us up over entertainment sermon. Well, actually, maybe maybe it is. Um, Anything you're ever watching... Imagine what it would be like if the Lord himself walked into the room and saw it. Do you have things you'll watch after the kids go to bed that you won't watch when they're awake? Why? What if Jesus was watching? Guess what? He is. It's watching, it's doing, and it goes beyond that. Remember Matthew 5, even into thinking, even into thinking about any kind of sexual experience with anyone who's not your spouse. That's what Paul addresses. We're not, we're supposed to behave as in the day, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. And then he lastly says, not in strife and jealousy. In other words, not in enmity, not not in being divided with others. We are not those who seek to be enemies with anyone. If you go back to Romans 12, 18, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We're not jealous of others. We're not mean to others. We're not finding points of discontentment with others. Our character is ready for the Lord to walk into our lives, return maybe today. John says, be ready so that we don't shrink back in, what's the word? Shame at his coming. Secondly, we're ready in Christ, readiness in Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. (laughs) How? Does that really make sense? If if I were to say, um, 
my friend Eric, if I say, put on Eric, you go. How does that work? Is this a piggyback? Is this a, what is this, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? You have to go back, we're putting off, putting off, laying aside the deeds of darkness, putting on or laying into our life the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say a moral code. He doesn't say behaving better or trying harder. He says it's centralized on the reality that Jesus is alive and that he can have a relationship with us. We put him on. We don't just stop doing stuff and start doing stuff. It's a response to he's alive and he's with us. Put on Christ. He stacks up Lord, Kurios, he's the master, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, Messiah, the Christ, who was the one predicted in the, in the Old Testament. If your or my pursuits of God ever devolve into merely trying to, to change, we've missed the point of Christianity. What did Paul say? Oh, that I may change. No, that I may know him. You can't know someone who's dead. And you can't know someone who's far away. You can only know someone who's alive and present. And that's Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead. And then the last thing he says in this chapter is readiness in strategy. All of us strategize. We're all making plans today. You may make a lot of plans. You may make little, little plans. You may make plans at the last moment. You may be like some people, Bob Taylor or somebody like that, who has spreadsheets of plans for the next 10 years. Everybody has plans. He says, make no provision. The word is strategy. The word is plan. Make no plan for your own flesh in regard to its lusts. All of you know you, you're tackled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And you know, if you examine your life, I certainly know it's in my, my, own, my own experience. You know exactly what it means to move toward things that will satisfy sinful desires in your flesh. And that could be different for each one of us. It's interesting, it's not specific here. No plan for your flesh, for the flesh, in regard to lust, strong desires, anything that would pull us away from our love and passion toward Jesus. What are you planning? How does making the provision work when you're flipping through the stations with your thumb? How does the provision look when you take a second look or when you, there's things at work that you could take home with you? And How's your provision for the flesh when you seek comfort over sacrificial ministry? not always easy. I'll confess that myself. There was a moment in the last few weeks when I was getting ready to have dinner. I got a phone call that I almost didn't take, but did. It was a friend who really needed to talk 
which meant a cold dinner. Sounds like a hero, right? No, no, no. My first thought when he started explaining to me was, I'm really hungry. And this is really good. And I would rather not talk right now. I think, did I just lose credibility to be the pastor of this church? It broke my heart as he began to pour out his. How easy it is for me to want comfort over sacrifice. Are you aware of the provision and strategies and plans that you instinctively make for your flesh to enjoy and pursue sinful expressions of itself? Remember, it's not if. He says, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Don't see if you might have them. You should lay them aside, Paul says. So a Christian responds to the gospel by being less and less like the world and more and more like the Savior that manifests itself in how we respond to one another in the body. It manifests itself in how we respond to the government because people are watching. It manifests itself in how we respond to anyone and everyone, friends, enemies, Christians, and unbelievers. And it mostly manifests itself in the fact that we know our Lord is coming back. And all of our living, all of our deciding, all of our priorities, all of our values should be rooted in the fact that we will one day see him face to face and we don't want to shrink back in shame at his appearing. It's a little bit cheesy, I think, but as I was finishing my notes, I just put a note to myself, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. This isn't come to church on Sunday, see you next week stuff. This is life dominating stuff because Jesus is master and Lord, not just a friend who we check in with now and again. I just wonder if you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I say this time and again, my greatest fear and my most earnest prayer about Mission Road, Bible Church on Mission Road, is that some or any of you could show up week in and week out knowing about the gospel but not knowing Christ. The some of you could be so deceived as to show up at the final judgment and say, Lord, look at all the stuff we did for you like Matthew 7 says and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no relationship. It was all based on behaviorism. Paul's so clear. He ends this whole section with Christ. Have you put on, will you put on, will you stay close to Christ? If you haven't, can I just beg you, run to Jesus. Don't walk, run to his gracious, 
saving offer to save you from hell and sin and discontentment and to provide you peace now and forever.